Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Neon Abstract Podcast Erotica. Today I'm joined by Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Coraline. However, I think this might be the only episode of Neon Abstract Podcast Erotica, but it's episode 20 of Greater Than Code. We're doing two podcasts simultaneously, Jessica. That's our new demo. That sounds great, Coraline. Okay, and I am thrilled to be here with Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica. And I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Jen Schieffer. Jen is better known as Jen Money Dollars and is an artist in Jersey City on purpose and a web app engineer. Her visual art has been described as neon abstract pixel erotica and her tech satire has been described as your eyes are awful like you are also awful. She feels privileged to be able to express herself and works hard to help others do the same. She is on Twitter at at Jen Schiffer. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what we'd like to do when we get started is find out a bit about your origin story. So take it away. You can also, talk about any superpowers you have to. This is the correct That's place That's very important to, that. to yes. make sure you add the superpowers. It's very oh. oh, okay. Superpowers. So uh, I am the first living, breathing lizard made entirely out of CSS and JavaScript. Uh, <laughs> I uh, started out as a lizard in college studying computer science and being interested in building uh, websites so that people on the internet can see like drawings I made and things I've written. And then I uh, started working as a department administrator and teaching at the university I went to and I got my master's in computer science. Uh, But then that got kind of boring and I decided to enter the industry. I went to work at the NBA and work with basketball statistics stuff and then left there because I got bored and joined a consulting company called Boku, uh, worked there for a few years. Uh, and I recently just left. I started a new job, but it's still a secret. So we could just say that my, my secret job is a uh, super lizard where I've gone back to my roots. I'm also, uh, I guess a tech humorist. I, uh, write and and joke a lot about the industry and the culture and build web applications that are both serious and also for jokes. Uh, That's kind of what people know me for. I think everyone wants to know, Jen, are you a lizard with one Z or two Zs? Because that's an important distinction. Or is it a Z? (laughs) One Z, one Z. How about that? I'm a a hybrid. Some sort of half-Canadian lizard. (laughs) Jen, I would like to go back a little bit, because you had mentioned that when you're going to school for computer science that you were interested in making web apps so you can put your drawings out there. So when did you start drawing? I mean, I'd always been drawing since I was really little, just like cartoons and stuff like that. Never did it really professionally. Um, When I was going to college, I was making like band flyers for all my boyfriends who were in bands and stuff and for my friends. and. I also just sort of, when I was younger, I, I had friends, but I didn't really go out much. And so when I started babysitting these neighbors' kids, they had a computer with the internet. And I saw like, oh, you could put something online and strangers can see it. I thought that was like weirdly exciting. And then I saw that other people are making web pages that I can see. Um, I didn't have a computer in my home until I was like a senior in high school. I didn't really have that access but when I babysat, these kids would just show me, like, the stuff that they were putting out there. And it was just really exciting. Uh, I got, like, really involved in the Weezer fan 
like space where I was making like Weezer fan pages on GeoCities and being involved in like the message boards and stuff, which was funny. And yeah, that's sort of what I was doing. And like, even now today, I find myself going back to those roots and just using my web presence more to share my art, which I hadn't been doing for some time because there was a time period where making art with code or making art while a programmer wasn't like, it was something that made people see you as not a serious developer. Um, I see that changing now, but there was a time where that wasn't the case. And so I kind of hid that part of me. I noticed that on your current website, the URL just fell on my head. What is it? Oh, genmoney.biz. Yes. You have flaming gifts. Is that a holdover from your GSD days? Um, yeah, I just really like that aesthetic. I'm also like not a designer. And so I, for my own personal stuff, I just do what looks good to me. And I'm also like in a position where I'm not like looking for a design job so I don't have to worry about whether my aesthetic matches with who I want to employ me or whatever. I like animated GIFs. I like the old GeoCities aesthetic. I like old web pre-standards stuff just because of nostalgia and stuff like that. And people seem to enjoy it also. I get a lot of compliments on uh, genmoney.biz because it reminds people back when they were first viewing the source of websites and building their own things. So I guess older people, they, they compliment it. Newer people, like younger people, newer people, <laughs> younger people are just getting into the whole like sort of vaporwave movement, which seems like new to them, but is just like sort of coming back for the rest of us. Uh, and so they're into it as well. It's a very interesting time for web aesthetic. Definitely. So your website is like retro? Yeah. There's little dancing MC Hammers, which was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure a lot of people going onto that webpage now have no idea who that guy is. They might, they, they, they probably heard MC Hammer, but I don't explicitly state this is MC Hammer dancing on my website. They're just like, oh, look at this like, little man dancing all over her webpage. Like, that's Poofy pants. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned viewing source. Is that one of the ways that you taught yourself how to build websites in the early days? Yeah, definitely. I remember my first web page was just a collage of photos of the band Weezer. And I saw other web pages that had cool, like, scrolling marquees. And I would, like, view the source of the page and copy, like, their code. And it, I would put it into my website and realize it's not working. And I realized, like, oh, like, it has all these, like, tags that say script in it, and maybe I need those, too. And, like, started learning JavaScript and, like, how that works and how that fits into the equation of, like, the web. And that's sort of how I got into that. And also, like, MySpace, like, was a big thing at the time. And, and I was, all of my friends wanted their MySpace pages to look cool like mine. So I was doing the source of websites that we liked of, like, our favorite bands and, like, copying their CSS over onto, like, the MySpace bio text box, which is where you enter all the CSS. And so started getting into doing things like that. And, uh, yeah, I would say that's, for the most part, how I learned how to get into building websites. Uh, it's not really the case anymore as we're building web applications with like JavaScript frameworks that sort of like hide all that sort of stuff. View source is not really a thing that a lot of new developers have access to when they want to learn how to build more sophisticated applications, which is unfortunate, but I'm hoping to see that 
turn around. I mean, I think there's some browsers that don't even have like a view source like button that is very obvious, like how to view the source of the page. Uh, and now that source is at least 200k of minimized JavaScript. Right, exactly. A lot of people are building stuff that don't have like source maps that allow you to see that stuff. And if you want to actually understand what's going on a web page, you have to be really sophisticated with browser dev tools, which are, you know, difficult to do. Actually, my, my new job, which is still a secret, my secret lizard super job, we are going to sort of hopefully change that. And yeah, just trying to get back to how we learned how to code and have other people have that sort of access to learning the same way. I think that's so important. It's it's an accessibility issue in a lot of ways because so many of us who have been doing this for a while did learn by viewing source and the minified JavaScript like prevents that. And now if you want to do something cool on the web, you have to learn one of, you know, two dozen frameworks and wrap your head around it's more of a focus on the programming aspect of it and less about the art and the visual presentation and making things cool. There's there's so much friction now. We like to think that we're badass because we started when HTML was just like tables and there was no CSS. Or we started when you wrote C with pointers. But the fact is we had an easier on-ramp because we started when that stuff was simpler. So we had yeah. it easy by starting there. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, there's this huge movement over the past couple of years where it's like everyone should learn how to code. And my sort of idea of that is like, not everyone should learn how to code, but everyone should have access to learn how to code if they want to. And, you know, there are people who've been creating great organizations to make the education more accessible. But sometimes, even if there are these organizations available, there are people who are just themselves with a computer, be it at home or like in a library. Like me, when I was a kid, if there were organizations to teach young girls how to code, I didn't have access to those. My parents both worked like two jobs. I was always at home. My only access to computers were in school. And even now the state of education for computers is terrible. I think the national average is that like 5% of public schools have computer science education. And like in New York, city alone, it's like 1%. So there are people like young lizard Jen who are just looking at a computer somewhere and view sources all that they have. And so I think it's important to not pull the ladder up behind us and go back to how we learned and make that available to other people, if that makes sense. Yeah. Jen, you said you went into school for a computer science degree. What led you to make that decision? Um, I wanted to build spaceships, but I couldn't afford the schooling. And then I got a scholarship where I was able to choose any state university in New Jersey, because that's where I live at the time. That's where I live now. And uh, Montclair State's computer science department chair recruited me. And uh, other departments had recruited me, but the Montclair State department was the only one that had a female department chair. And I thought that was oh. super awesome. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is what I want to get involved with. I want to do computer stuff because that seems like the next path down that I can afford next to building rocket ships. And this woman had like personally called me and I was like, wow, they want me. And it's a woman in charge. And so that's what I did. Shout out to Dorothy Dreamer. Yeah. Awesome. Did you find that computer science, like how did that impact your approach? Because you're, it sounds like when you were coming up, 
a lot of your approach was very visual and it was very focused on, you know, presenting art to the world and your own creativity to the world. How did that intersect with, I don't know, when I think of computer science degrees, I think of, oh, you're learning algorithms and you're building compilers. And did you see those two things merging back then? Or is that something that happened kind of after the fact? Well, I think I realized through high school that I was very much a problem solver. And I'm a visual learner, but I do love numbers and word problems. And so the theoretical computer science education sort of fed that need, whereas I was able to use that theory to build things that fed like my visual needs. So I got a lot involved in learning the math behind computer graphics, stuff like that. The math behind pixels? Math behind pixels, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, there's like a separation and there's like a lot of, I guess, people who study computer science or people who think of those as study of computer science think that like, oh, you know, you need computer science to like build web applications. And there's definitely like a separation, which I could talk for hours and hours about because I used to write computer science curriculum and also teach web development. But computer science is such a, and much like web development, it's such an interdisciplinary field that there are lots of people who come from different backgrounds that can thrive in either of those spaces. Like some of the best engineers I know are have backgrounds in creative writing and have it in art and stuff like that. So my background is in computer science and, and math and statistics and stuff, but a lot of people like first meet me through like my artwork. It's sort of like the opposite way. So let's talk about your art. Can you tell us more about what pixel art actually is for people who've never seen it before? Sure. So how would I describe pixel art? Well, you know, a pixel is the the sort of the smallest unit on a display. If you have like a crappy TV, like I do at home and you look really close to it, like your parents tell you not to when it's on, you can see the little squares that each have a single color and that's a pixel. And pixel art sort of harkens back to early game console, old TV sort of displays. I would say it's a type of abstract art. And so my pixel art in particular, um, which is, I guess, is reflected in the the, the title of, of today's podcast, is uh, erotic pixel art. So I draw a lot of um, nude ladies. Um, I call them pixel babes, which are mostly self-portraits or just portraits of women that I know, most of them who are in tech, and also some, some men in tech uh, who let me draw them. And it's sort of like a reflection on like tech is a very progressive industry. We're always trying to disrupt and stuff like that. But when it comes to sexuality, I feel like it is very inhibited. And so pixel art is abstract enough where I can like post on Instagram a pixel drawing of a nude woman, but you can't post like a photograph of a nude woman. But what is pixel art? But really like an image zoomed in all the way. So it's just kind of like a a joking kind of take on our inhibitions within the industry uh, while still being able to post boobs on the internet without getting in trouble. I think it's really interesting what you said about like sexuality being kind of a taboo in the tech industry. I know a lot of women in tech who have this whole other life in terms of their sexuality, whether it's kink or their sexual history or things along those lines that they're afraid to talk about because it is so taboo and because, unfortunately, it also presents a vector for abuse if you 
are a visible woman on the internet, you're subject to abuse and you don't want to give your harassers any additional fuel by which to attack you. Yeah. And also I feel like people who aren't men in tech have kind of still like some sort of target on their backs or somebody is trying to oppress them in some sort of way. So why give them that fuel? People are, you know, you know, you think of like teachers, women teachers all the time are being like fired because of like raunchy photos being found of them on the internet and stuff like that. And we'd like to think that the tech industry is a lot more progressive than that. But I feel like our sexuality is taken out on us in more silent ways or even more public by anonymous people and harassers and stuff like that. And I have you know, I know men in tech who are very open with their sexuality. They're involved in all the sort of kin communities. And I'm kind of like, oh, I wish that, like, women could sort of ha- be that open in the industry without fearing their day job being taken away from them or being harassed by other people. But that's just simply, like, not the case today. To be fair, it's, it's not trivial for men either. I mean, I really appreciate Afer on Twitter for all the gay kink posts that he makes and the photos of his ass, which are quite enjoyable to look at. But I really appreciate like that openness because you don't see it with men either. Hardly. Yeah. Yeah. And Kyle is a good friend of mine. He's actually the subject of some of my male erotic art, Um, you know, and I talked with him about this too, or, you know, yeah, he can be very open. And it's so funny. He'll speak at a conference and, you know, he's one of the smartest engineers ever and he'll get all these new followers and he'll, he'll change <laughs> all the new followers with a photo of his ass. And it's just so brilliant. It's a performance art in itself. It's so great. But that definitely wouldn't have the same effect if I were to speak at a conference and then be like, hello, new followers with a photo of my tits. That's just, you know, it wouldn't have the same effect. Also, I don't work for myself. He works for himself now. But yeah. yeah, and he's like publicly one of the most brilliant developers in the world and doing okay. amazing, innovative work. So when you have a million people who would love to hire you, you can take those risks. Yeah, exactly. And I just feel like it's harder for a woman to be in that same position. And Kyle gets, you know, pushback also. I mean, with every tweet that he posts of a photo of himself, he'll have somebody uh, like just flat out ask him for like, to post less gay stuff, you know, and you never know if that person's going to be somebody that, you know, he goes to interview with to hire him for a contract job. You know what I mean? It's, it's a risk that you definitely put out there. I don't feel comfortable putting myself out there and I'm a pretty visible person that is very secure in my job, but I still am not comfortable opening myself up to that sort of harassment. I also don't, I feel like people use women's sexuality against them a lot more than people use men's sexuality against them. I don't want my sexuality to be used in a negative way because it's a very positive, amazing thing, in my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) When I meet people at a conference, I don't want them thinking of me in sexual terms. I want them talking about programming with me. Right, exactly. This is a symptom of the problem that, in general, we're not allowed to be our full selves, whether it's in our internet presence or, you know, how we present ourselves to the world at a conference or in person when you meet someone. In tech, we're not allowed to be our full selves. And there's this, there's a theme that I always come back to on this podcast. And that is like the ideal developer is still held up to be this emotionless robot with no outside life spending all their free time coding open source. And that's not a human. 
humans are complex and we have layers mm-hmm. and we have interests outside of technology and it's like a fucking taboo. We can't talk about those things and it's it's really depressing to me like that we can't bring our full selves to bear. What I find so interesting about that is that I have yet to meet a person who actually feels comfortable being their full self. There's always like they're always saying what you just said, Coraline, that there's things that they enjoy that they don't want to talk about because they're afraid people won't take them as seriously or they don't want people to see them in a different light. And it begs the question of why do we even care about these stereotypes so much if nobody actually is enjoying the privilege of them? Because I haven't met those people either who are that robot, that emotionless robot that is projected as what an engineer is. That's a good point. Everybody's keeping quiet about something. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, like, personally, I always have this fear of making my peers feel uncomfortable, which is a very, like, hard thing to deal with as, like, when I write satire or if I'm, like, posting surreal tweets on Twitter as I normally do. I'll, like, tweet something and then I'll immediately be like, oh my gosh, is this going to make one of my coworkers feel uncomfortable? And should I care about that? And if they do feel uncomfortable, is that my problem or is it their problem that they need to face? Not that I ever post anything about, like, work and stuff like that, but you never know, like, if I post about, like, a date I'm on or something like that. You you just never know, like, who is going to think of of what and how that can possibly be used against you. So it it takes a lot of comfort with your peers to be able to open yourself up in any sort of way. I mean, right now, I I left a job of where I worked with all my best friends, and the company I just joined now is really awesome, but everyone there is, is quite new to me. And a large group of them seem to know about my online presence. And so I feel comfortable that they know what they're getting into. (laughs) But uh, I'm still not entirely sure what I can or cannot get away with in terms of my own personality um, coming through. But then again, it's like, well, they hired me. So that's what they're getting. But it's like a really weird, slippery slope for lack of a better phrase. I'm kidding. I love that phrase, slippery slope. But yeah. <laughs> I was just reminded of, I'm in a Slack community. Well, I'm in like 20 Slack communities, but one of them is specifically for queer people in tech. And um, we have a selfies channel. And um, I've said on Twitter that I think as a trans woman, celebrating my body is a political act. And I really believe that. But we have another channel on that Slack called Selfie Subflirt Club where people post like kind of suggestive photos of each other and flirting is allowed and encouraged. And for the longest time, I was terrified to post there because I'm like, even though this is a private Slack community, what if one of those pictures got out and what if it was weaponized against me? But eventually I got to the point where I was like, fuck it, I'm going to celebrate my body and I'll just deal with the consequences. Yeah. And yeah, I I think I was telling this to uh, a guy not too long ago about how um, women in tech, we all have backup plans. Like, okay, I'm at home right now working. What if I found out that somebody like released my address or said they're like on their way? Like I already know what my contingency plan is. You know, people say like you have to have a fire escape plan. Like right now women who are visible online, like have their sort of, or should have, their like docs escape plan who am i going to stay with blah 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 blah. what am i going to do with my cats you know that sort of stuff and so when you're posting stuff online whether it's just like a public tweet 
for a suggestive photo, like I have my backup plan of like, what am I going to do? How am I going to explain myself when this gets out? And if I lose my job, what can I do? Like, who's my support plan and stuff like that. And it's very exhausting. It's super Mm -hmm. exhausting. And that's why I feel like a lot of people hide parts of themselves from that. And it's really interesting. I just like, I've been like sick all week and like up until like late at night coughing. And last night I watched uh, on Netflix, there's this like 45 minute documentary about the um, Ashley Madison, like hacking Mm -hmm. And just, like, hearing all about, like, all the people whose, like, info got out. It was mostly about, sort of, the business behind Ashley Madison and stuff like that. I was hoping it would touch more on the people that were affected, but didn't really. But it was just, like, kind of interesting that nobody seemed to think, like, what will I do if my information is found that, like, I'm on this site? I feel like whenever you join a website or whenever you post something online, you have to actively think, like... What consequences can I have from doing this? And how will I save myself from those consequences? And if you don't do that, then, I don't know, it just seems like you're at a loss. But again, it could be very exhausting to do that. For background, Ashley Madison was like a site that targeted finding people to hook up with when you were cheating on your spouse? Yeah, it's an adultery matchup website kind of thing, yeah. I guess, like, over a course of years, these hackers, like, gathered all their data and just, like, started dumping, like, all the information about customers and the founders themselves. And not only did they release all the customers' information, but also, like, it was noticed that, like, most of the women on the site were actually bots. Sad. Yeah, that was terrible. I think you have a very useful coping mechanism there. I do this too. Of When I'm afraid of something, I think about in my head, okay, what do I do if this happens? And I make up a story about the actions that I would take. And then I can go on. It's no longer a fear. It's now a risk. Right, exactly. And then like speaking about like suggestive photos getting out, I was just thinking also like, Let's say I post on Slack a suggested photo in, like, a safe space and it somehow got out. I could probably, like, own it and whatever. But then, down the line, any opportunities that come to me, people can, like, blame it on, oh, because of those photos. Like, I think of, like, Kim Kardashian. Like, Kim Kardashian, who has, like, all these apps and all these businesses and TV shows and stuff like that. But everybody just is, like, she's only famous because of that sex tape kind of thing. And whether that's the case or not, like... There's always, like, one thing that, like, gets somebody, the right person to notice you. Like, yeah, do, you blame, yeah. do you blame all of that work, like, on that one moment where, like, somebody noticed you? It's just a very interesting thing. We have a question from someone in our community, Slack, Sophie, who wants to know, and this is sort of in line with what we've been talking about, less for the imagery that you produce and more about the satire that you produce How do you think potential employers react to your satire? Well, I can talk about my former employer, Boku, uh, and I stated this conferences in public before, and it's totally true. They loved my satire. They loved the message behind it, just trying to take tech less seriously and call out the sort of call-out culture that we seem to have still today. I always say that they not only tolerate my voice, but they celebrate it. And I can say with full confidence that my new super lizard employer feels the same way. And they followed my work and know me. And I, I'm confident that they're they're all great with that. I feel like if anybody 
dislikes my satire or they think that it's bad, they're ignoring the actual toxicity in the industry and therefore they're not somebody that I would want to work for. But I'm very fortunate that I, a lot of people support me that I can make that decision and stance. Right. Because we don't need all the jobs in the world. We don't need to maximize the number of jobs that we could have. We need to maximize for one job at the moment that is the best job. Yeah, I always get people telling me like, oh, you know, you could probably work wherever you want to work if, if you wanted to. And I'm like, well, even if that were the case, which is not true, maybe I don't want to work everywhere. You know what I mean? You, I have a mission myself, and that narrows down a lot of the companies that I would be willing to work for that match that mission. Speaking of, of sexuality in tech, we were going to talk about CSS perverts. Yeah, <laughs> CSS perverts. Yes. The origin of CSS perverts goes back to the uh, origin of Rockstar Developer or JavaScript Ninja. Those phrases that like we use in tech to make ourselves stand out, although everybody was using it, therefore no one was standing out. And so my friend Nick and I created CSS perverts as sort of our like sort of phrase. I guess I got a recruiter email once that was like, Jen, we're looking for JavaScript ninjas for this job. And I was like, Call me when you're looking for a CSS pervert. I think that was the origin. And they never <laughs> called me back. It's tragic. It became our name for writing satire and tech, both at the recruiter level, the developer level, level, and even managerial. Just like people, I don't know if they're just trying to stand out to get all like the best developers to work for them, but it just, this whole industry seems like a huge pissing contest. Who has, you know, the most ping pong tables? You only need one table. Which developers are willing to work for 20 hours straight? Like, that's bananas. No one should work that much. And, you know, oh, like, our our company, we have, like, trucks where you can get your hair cut. I don't want to get my hair cut on a truck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a fun time. Like, <laughs> it's very surreal. And, and, and we're in this bubble where we have all of these ridiculous amenities thrown at us, and then also these ridiculous expectations that are supposed to compensate for these amenities. And then I think back to like my previous job at Montclair State, where I had an office, but it didn't have windows. And there's a coffee maker in the kitchen. Sometimes I had to make my own coffee because the other professors would finish the pot and being guys and know how to refill it afterwards. Like, I think of, like, the cushy lifestyle that I have now in this industry, but then at the same time, I feel like the work-life balance isn't there, so it feels less cushy. It's a very interesting paradox that this industry is, like, created for us, you know? I mean, in my, in my new job, I think there's, like, five types of water, and that's awesome. Water is good for me, and I need that. And it's, like, actually great because I'm like, oh, you know, I, like, I've never been more hydrated in my entire life. And that's actually <laughs> <laughs> but that's, like, super, like, super great. I super appreciate that. But then when I see those things, I'm worried. I'm like, oh, are they expecting me to, like, be here all the time? And that's not the case. I've been, I've been working from home all week because I've been sick. And, you know, they would rather me not pass my disease on to the rest of them and just stay at home. And that's, like, really great. But I know that there are some jobs that, like, some offices where they expect you to be there like all the time. They're like, we have people to do your laundry. Like no one needs to be doing their laundry at work. Like that's just like not, I don't know. Maybe I'm old. I just turned 32. I'm not old. You're not uh, old. <laughs> if you're old, then I, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> With those expectations that you're talking about of like working for 20 hours, like 
when I was younger, when I was coming up in, in software development, I felt like I had to work extra hard because I do not have a CS degree. I was self-taught. My head mentors had helped me and I read a lot of books and I felt like I had something to prove. And I actually, at one job, worked for 32 hours straight on a project and it was horrible and it was a horrible way to live. And this is when my daughter was young. So I actually missed out on a lot with my daughter as a result of having this like really unsustainable work ethic. And um, I remember very clearly one May day. We were driving in the car. She was in the back seat and I was talking to her about May Day and I was talking to her about the labor movement. And I was like, you know, a lot of people fought and died for an eight hour work day and a 40 hour work week. And she said, but mommy, you work a lot more than eight hours a day. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you're so right. What am I doing? Yeah. Right now inside my head, I'm just like, it's not that bad, but then when you put it that way, it's like, yeah, like work-life balance is super important, but then like, why should we complain? Because we work in these places that offer all these like amenities and like, would you take it back? Like, would I prefer to work in an office that didn't have all of those things? But then again, like, this is just like an industry where the expectations have sort of surpassed what people are willing to offer us in order to make up for that lack of work-life balance. I don't know. It's like a huge problem that I see getting better because I see culture at different companies, like, improving. I certainly have been very fortunate where I've worked at two companies now that have really excellent culture and really believe in work-life balance because they recognize productivity is higher when you're not not getting any sleep, which is like not a novel concept. The idea of humans getting sleep and therefore being productive. Like, why are you forgetting that? Like, who is deciding, like, you know what, these basic human needs, they're not really basic human needs. Like, turn out some code. I don't know. It's just very, very well, weird. It's an unfair kind of trade because it's not like the work you're doing isn't really intensive and maybe you need a ping pong break or a water break and why should you have to give that up because you don't want to work 12 or 15 hours straight it just it feels like there's a unequal equation there and I mean even though this is not exactly necessarily all true it just kind of reminds me of when the first time I watched Mad Men and I was like, what? Is this how people worked? Because, you know, they were drinking at nine in the morning. They had couches they were going to sleep on. And then it's the, the 50s and the 60s. So when they leave work, like there's no way to contact them because the only way you can call them is at home and they don't go straight home. So they were able to have a way time that it feels like you don't have anymore because just because you're not at work doesn't mean that you're not going to get pinged or someone's not going to call you or you're not expected to be available because there's not like a 24 hour waiting period for you to respond to an email. You know, it's like, Oh, I emailed you. Did you, and then somebody calls you. Did you get my email? No, it's seven o'clock. I'm eating, but it's kind of expected now for you to work all the time. And I think it's unfair to kind of make people feel like, well, they gave me free water, so I should be here. That's the sort of thing that's optimized for 25-year-olds with no family obligations yeah. too, right? Yeah, but I mean, that also assumes that the 25-year-old has no friends and no family that they want to see either. I mean, it's, work it's, with. Yeah, it, it's, it's a little unfair to say, oh, you don't have like immediate family that has to see you. So therefore, you should be good with working all day and all night. Yeah, and that's definitely something that... I've had said to me in one of my first jobs was like, I was complaining about having to stay late and no one else did. And they're like, well, you are young and you're single and we have kids. And it's like, 
I could pop out a baby if I wanted to. Like, don't, <laughs> don't, don't threaten me with a good time. Like, <laughs> it, it's a bad day when, you know, having a child is the, your version of getting work-life balance. That's <laughs> not a good way to do it. I'm interested, Jen, since you just went through a job search process to arrive at your super lizard company, how did you figure out what kind of culture they had before you agreed to join? So the company that I joined, I had known about for a while, and I've had long conversations with the CEO and talked to other people that were there. And I was very, I was fortunate that they wanted me to work for them. I was sort of approached. And also a lot of companies, their their CEOs or their employees write blogs. And so I read a lot to get an understanding of the culture of, of the company and the people that are running it. So I did a lot of reading and research. Really, I, as I said before, when I, when I look for a job um, or if I'm talking to somebody about a project, I really want to work with somebody who has the same mission as I do. And my mission is, again, making learning to code and being part of this industry accessible to anybody who wants in on it and trying to make it a more inclusive and happy place to be a part of. When I was learning how to code, I was really having a fun time. I really enjoyed it. And I feel like that sometimes gets lost on us when we start to work and I want to make learning how to code and, and coding like a fun experience and stay a fun experience so that new people can get into the industry and hopefully pushing out the toxic people at the same time. So doing that sort of research and, and talking to people is really the best thing that, that one can do in order to uh, find a space that they feel safe working in and leaving their other really great job. My last job was really awesome. I just needed to do something different. I, I didn't want to do consulting anymore. Um, but it was a huge, like, tough decision for me to make. I probably sobbed uh, eating takeout for like a whole Saturday about changing jobs. <laughs> I want to go back to something you just said. Are you implying that there are toxic people in the community? And is that for real? <laughs> Take a seat. Um <laughs> Toxic people in the community. Yes, they're there and they're out in the open. They're not even hiding. They're um, rock stars. They're ninjas. The rock stars are ninjas, exactly. You know, Shouldn't we forgive them for their transgressions because they're rock stars and ninjas? I mean, they're productive, right? And that's the most important thing. But they're not generative. And they create a lot of the technologies that we use, so therefore they're forgiven. It's really interesting. Like, I. You see this in, like, the music industry where there are these, like, artists, performance artists that are, like, actually horrible human beings, but then they, like, make music and, like, oh, this music's actually great. And let's use R. Kelly, for example. R. Kelly, not particularly a good human being. Some would call him a sexual predator. He's made music that sounds really great and is very nostalgic. Every time I go to a karaoke party, someone puts in uh, the Ignition remix, and it makes those people feel good. And then you think of, like, let's say, um, God, hopefully this doesn't get me in trouble, uh, Linus Torvalds. Like, some say he's a toxic person, but, like, he gets away with it because, like, oh, he made Linux. Like, does Linux make people feel good the way that, like, singing, like, the Ignition remix, like, feels good? Like, can you compare software and music and the separation of, like, the engineer and the, the and what they built and, like, the artist and, like, the art that they created? I don't think that we make that separation with art 
like we do with software, and they're completely different things. And it's just like something interesting. I feel like not a lot of people like talk about enough. When I go to the museum, I go to museums a lot. I'm an artist, and, and I like to look at art. And if it's like a modern art museum, and there's like a Picasso exhibit, usually when people turn the corner and see Picasso, they finally see something that they recognize, and like, oh, Picasso. But like, do they realize that Picasso is like not a good person, or like Frank Sinatra is like not a good person? But everybody loves that song "New York" here in New York. Uh, where I'm by. So I feel like we we sort of idolize software developers the same way that we do these musicians. And we have this idea, this like cult of personality and like this idea of like celebrity in software development. And do we think it's warranted? Like, are these people famous? Like, I, I don't think so. You know, just like the other day, uh, Eric S. Raymond, like... Oh, one of my favorite people. Yeah. yeah like, so like ESR, like, set like sent to, uh, to the Python dev mailing list, like, uh, I'm back. And like, you know, I sort of faded away after that whole being famous nonsense. And I think I tweeted that I like, la- I-, I laughed out loud and coughed at the same time and got a nosebleed, which is like completely <laughs> true. It's like literally true. Cause I was sick, but I was like, I can't believe this is happening. Like this whole, not only the, just the presumptuousness of like emailing the whole list and being like, I'm back. But then the whole, like from the, being famous nonsense and i'm like being famous that's what you're like calling like all that you being famous uh, i i i can't even with some of these people but i feel like the the python community now is a lot different in terms of like you know the man list have a code of conduct and people are more aware of like what the proper way to behave is and also people are aware of like his sort of past and, and his delusions grandeur about things that he's just like he has just a lot of bad ideas there's like a whole list of things but i think generally the last thing was he was sort of coming out and saying that uh women in tech groups were trying to seduce men to call out fake rape uh accusations about big developers i think he was saying that like people are trying to do it to live storm all it's yeah, it's just like this sort of boring, like, you're irrelevant, stay irrelevant, let people do their jobs and write code and try to build this really great Python community. Nobody needs you involved, like, kind of thing. He also has come out against codes of conduct. He wrote a hit piece about me, um, Why Hackers Must Eject the Social Justice Warriors. And um, he also has a great quote um, talking about the fact that, from his opinion, black people commit more crimes because they have lower IQs than white people. He's, he's literally like the worst human being. And, um, yeah. I'm actually, Jen, giving a talk at OzCon this year, which I am super nervous about called the broken promise of open source, where I'm calling out these so-called leaders and pointing out that the cult of personality runs counter to open source values. And like, why the fuck do we keep doing this? Why do, why do we keep elevating people and forgiving people? And it reminds me of this phrase that I learned in Latin, which I think is insidious. Um, I don't remember the Latin words, but it translates to love the art, hate the artist. And I, mm-hmm. I think that is, that is like the worst thing we can do. Just the worst. Because I'm going to use Linux and I'm going to use Emacs, but I never want to work with Linus or ESR. And if I never want to work with the person, then that kills the collaboration of open source. Yeah. And fortunately, like Python has thrived without ESR involved. Um, I'm not so much involved with the Linux community, but I mean, I hear about all that sort of drama all the time. 
And yeah, I just feel like it's very important to open source to make sure that there is a large, inclusive, thriving community so that it can drive out the need to interact with these toxic people. If someone creates a project and they're a bad person and the project builds up this huge community, then the community will sort of outvoice that that person. I feel like that's how um, the system should be. No, like, benevolent dictatorship kind of thing, which exists in a lot of, you know, projects to avoid that sort of interaction. And there's also so many projects now where I feel like if I don't like somebody, then I can like leave the project or I can talk to somebody about it. And I feel like codes of conduct have really sort of made that visible and great. And and I gotta say, like, as somebody who is seen as like, people have called me famous and a celeb and I'm always, I always correct them. I'm like, I'm popular in my weird niche sort of way. I am definitely a part of this, of the whole cult of personality thing. There are people who want to, you know, meet me at conferences who want, who I get invited to speak at conferences all the time. I've never had to do a CFP for a conference before. And I've spoken at like 30 different places and people who want me to work for them. And I know that 90% of it is just because of my personality online. Uh, I mean, I do get, maybe I'm not giving myself enough credit. Like I do build a lot of like open source stuff, but people like me for my mission and my attitude about things. And I feel like it's an attitude that a lot of pe- a lot more people need to have in their workplace and job. So I feel like I'm on the other end of things where I didn't build something that everybody's using and therefore I get away with everything. Um, I'm getting away with things because I'm on the right side of the culture. Uh, and I just want to make more people who ha- are on that right side of culture visible in the industry so that they can have the opportunities that I have. Because Whether there are plenty of nice people who can build great software. And there are plenty of good people making good music. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. I just want to point out, I tweeted this morning that you were going to be a guest on the show. And I asked Twitter if they, anyone had any questions. And I'm already receiving harassing tweets um, on your behalf. So great culture we have here. Congratulations. Well, maybe part of the problem is we need to be more democratizing and less like warring tribes because it kind of sounds almost like when we were talking about the ninja and the rock stars, it's this idea that you can be a person who's larger than life. And because of that, then people follow you. And that is not the same, like what you were saying, Coraline, about open source. It's not the same concept of everybody come together and collaborate, because that means that there's these leaders that you can follow, and then you can decide if you agree or don't agree with them, but what they did is more important than whether or not you agree with them. And maybe what we should be doing is more so everybody collaborates, and it doesn't matter how big your name is or how many people know who you are, because you're just a collaborator like everybody else, and make that more of a, of a democracy. And then that would take away, I think, a little bit from this, I get to be a, a war leader, because that's almost the culture that's developed where once you have enough power, then you feel like you are entitled to say and do what you want. It's exactly like it. a lot like, of open source was a reaction against hierarchies, because a hierarchical organization is necessarily risk averse. And any risk that's taken that fails, falls down on a single person. And open source was supposed to be organized more like a network and a network can take risks because the impact isn't felt by a a single person and the consequences aren't felt by a single person, but the network absorbs whatever happened and can respond to it in a really productive way. And with these cults of personality, we have hierarchies again, and that 
that are so counter to like the founding philosophy of open source. And no one seems to see that. No, because everybody wants to be famous. And that means that you need like daddy to notice you. Like everyone who defends Linus is like, maybe Linus will like notice me defending him and then like make me his like henchman or this like complete thing that does not exist. You know what I mean? I mean, I get it too. I have people who will defend me when I don't need defending. And I'm like, what are you trying to do? Like, I noticed you. Okay. Is that like make you happy? Like, I don't know. It's just a very weird thing to notice. It's a sociological problem. There are probably plenty of people working on their PhD studying this kind of thing. Um, I hope so. I but in the meantime, research. Yeah, but in the meantime, it's like how do you combat that? And I feel like I'm trying to combat it by like using my popularity to amplify other voices and also try to do good in some sort of way in the community and not just like making about what my bad ideas are. I'm sure I have plenty of bad ideas, but So with what Astrid said, it's like we don't need a bunch of famous leaders or more famous leaders. We need a large number of popular people who are strengthening the network. We need mentors, people who are also advocates, mentors and advocates, because there's a lot of people in the community that need to be advocated for. We need, you know, diversity and open source projects and not every and it single person. And it takes calling them voice. individually. Right. right. Exactly. And inviting them personally. It's a lot of work, but I mean, if you get to the point where a lot of people know who you are, they amplified you. It's time to like do the work then to help them pull up. You know, they, I, I think of it as like, you know, when you let somebody, you push somebody up the ladder, they have to turn around and grab you and, and pick you up behind them and not just leave all those people behind. Yeah. I think we're at the portion of the show where we want to do reflections. And for new listeners, reflections is when we look back on the conversation that we've had with our fascinating guests. And definitely true. This, this episode, Jen, is wonderful and sort of highlight things that really resonated with us and maybe things that we want to do as a result of the conversation. And, um, Jessica, do you want to go first? I'd love to. I love the discussion about tech being considering itself progressive and it is compared to a lot of careers but sexually we're quite inhibited and that led us to everybody has something that they keep quiet about because they're not sure of the consequences some of us like kyle and jen and me have the privilege of not really being worried about being unable to find a job soon and when we do express more of ourselves, when Jen makes her retro website that some people are going to scoff at, and when she writes satire and makes erotic pixel art, pushes those boundaries. When I talk about being polyamorous on Twitter, when Coraline is proud of who she is, all of these are using our privilege our privilege of being unlikely to be unable to find a job. And when we do that in public, you know, it shifts the standards. It sets an example. It makes it a little bit easier for other people to put more of themselves out there. So Jen and Coraline, thank you for doing that. I have similar reactions. I think those of us with the privilege of not being worried about how the things we say in public will necessarily impact our ability to find a good job. 
does give us a responsibility to be public about those things, to show people that it's okay. But I think we also have to recognize that not everyone has that privilege, um, especially yeah. people who are early in their careers. They do have to be careful because their their options are necessarily limited by their limited experience. But hopefully we can open the way to some dialogue about those things and, and hopefully we can start breaking down some taboos. Um, my reflection actually comes from something you mentioned earlier in, in our conversation, Jen, which was in talking about your origin story. And I thought it was really profound that you see yourself, you know, as a computer scientist, but you also see yourself as an artist and you don't seem to have this need to separate them or, or feel like you have to explain them. And I think that that's very important because so many people feel like tech cannot may not be for them because they are not a certain type of person. And even uh, some of our previous guests who have had artistic endeavors have also talked about how they, they felt like they had to pick one or the other. And I think it's great that you never did. I think my reflection on this conversation is, I guess the thing that I sort of learned as we were speaking was how much I struggle with trying to be myself when realizing that a lot of people think that I'm very comfortable with being myself, especially when it comes to sexuality. But I am a lot more comfortable today than I was six months ago. And I was six months before that. And I see that as Coraline said, the, the more that we talk about this stuff, the more we start breaking down those taboos and maybe there will be a point where we all can really truly comfortably be ourselves. And it's not until we can be ourselves that we will do and make the best work that we can do. So it's really in everybody's favor, our peers, our employers and stuff to provide a space where we aren't inhibited. And I'm not saying like walking around naked everywhere and stuff like that. Again, I don't want everyone, anyone to feel uncomfortable but I want to take away the fear of saying something about myself or expressing something about myself that is, you know, can inhibit me anymore. And that's just something that I really like discussing and wasn't expecting us to discuss. And I think that it being all women today has really been a huge factor in that. And I appreciated that. Yeah, bonus. That worked out. This has been an amazing conversation, and Jen, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. As a sort of behind-the-scenes glimpse, we organize the show into 10 or 15-minute segments, and we plan in advance the things that we're going to talk about. And we did not follow the script at all today, <laughs> and I am so happy about that because I, I think the conversation we had was very real and very important, and I really hope our listeners appreciate it. So speaking of listeners, Greater Than Code is 100% listener-funded. If you want to support our show, if you want us to have more conversations like this and more amazing guests like Jen, please go to patreon.com slash greater than code. Pledging at any level gets you access to our patron-only Slack community where you'll have the opportunity to continue the conversation with guests, suggest new guests, and find a really welcoming and safe community to talk about some of these hard issues in tech beyond the latest JavaScript framework. So thank you all very much. And this has been a great episode. And I look forward to next week. So I hope you do too. Thanks, everybody. 